You are listening to episode 85 of the Tennis Files podcast with special guest Bill Kellogg. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s inspired style and cutting edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. Welcome to the Tennis Files Podcast, bringing you advice from the top minds in tennis to help you improve your game. And now, here's your host, Mehrban Iranshad. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files Podcast. I'm really pleased that you could join me today for another fantastic episode. I'm actually going to be leaving in a few minutes to play a 9-5 combo match with my buddy Victor. So that's a 5-0-4-5 pairing, so I'm really excited to do that. But I figured, hey, let's get this intro and outro done before I head off to play some competitive tennis, which is always fun to do, always great to try to come up with winning strategies and tough matches and just live in the moment. So it's it's really a fun time and I'm really looking forward to playing tonight. But today's interview for this particular episode is with Bill Kellogg. He has had a very interesting and fantastic career so far uh, and he's definitely not done yet, of course, but being the uh, president of La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club, which has been designated top 25 resort by a very reputable site, I think, Tennis Resorts Online. And on top of that, he's done a lot of really cool things in his career, such as being a linesman at Wimbledon and playing pro tournaments and uh, serving with and for the USTA and being very heavily involved in Davis Cup and Fed Cup and senior national tournaments. So really cool conversation. I really enjoyed learning from the very wise and sage Bill Kellogg today. Uh, So I really do hope you enjoy this episode. And without further ado, here is my interview with Bill Kellogg. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Tennis Files podcast. I'm really, really excited to have Bill Kellogg on the show today to talk about how he has hosted some of the biggest tennis events in tennis and uh, also about his many incredible experiences in the tennis world. Uh, We're going to get into both his playing career and also uh, his many different positions that he's had in the tennis world. And I'm especially grateful to Bill because he's really contributed a lot to the tennis industry and as we'll get into and as you'll hear. Just a little bit about Bill's background, actually more than a little bit. Bill is the president of La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club, which has been designated a top 25 tennis resort by Tennis Resorts Online. Bill was also inducted into the Southern California Tennis Association Hall of Fame in 2017 alongside such legends as Rod Laver, Bobby Riggs, Debbie Graham, Ken Stewart, and Stella Sampras-Webster, which is an incredible class there. Bill has also competed in pro-level tournaments. Andy played number one for Dartmouth College, and he participated in the NCAA championships while playing for Dartmouth. Bill also serves as a sectional delegate of the Southern California Tennis Association and was also a longtime member of the International Advisory Council of the International Tennis Hall of Fame, and he was also previously a director at large for the USTA with the Audit Committee specifically. Besides that, Bill has also previously served as a linesman and chair umpire at Wimbledon, which is uh, incredible, and I'm sure we'll talk about that a bit 
it later on. And Bill is also responsible for overseeing several other properties under the Kellogg umbrella as well. And big shout out to Charlie Warner for connecting me with Bill. So Bill, I really appreciate you joining the podcast and I'm very excited to speak with you today. Well, great to be here, Marvon. And uh I'd uh, love to uh, tell you a little bit about uh, what my life has been like. So. Yes, yes. I mean, it's uh, you know, incredible uh, how long La Jolla has been uh, in existence, and just kudos to you and your family for that. But to start off the round of questions, Bill, I'm, I'm sure you get this question all the time, and I'm, I'm sure you'll probably facepalm or something when I ask you this, but I have to ask you, what relation, if any, do you have to my favorite cereal brand, Kellogg's? <laughs> well, I love it. And uh, and I eat it all the time, but uh, I'm actually related to the cereal branch of the family before cereal, B.C. Mm. So my uh, particular family branch actually was uh, involved in the newspaper business. So uh, my great-grandfather was a publisher of the Detroit Daily News and had uh, a bunch of uh, newspapers in the Kansas City area for many years. He was credited with inventing classified advertising wow. and, and, you know, as a way to make a newspaper profitable. Then he came out to uh, California, worked a little bit with William Randolph Hearst, bought up a bunch of community newspapers, and uh, ultimately, uh, you know, he retired from the business, and, and that's when he started the La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club. Wow. wow. Very interesting stuff, Bill. That's cool to know. And what, Bill, was your very first memory of actually hitting a tennis ball, and when was that? Well, I can remember hitting against the net when the net was probably about uh, 10 inches taller than me. <laughs> so. So it was pretty young. Uh, my dad used to have the babysitting duty on, on Sundays. And so what he would do is he would take me and uh, my brothers and sister down to uh, my actually my grandfather's court where he had a, an, a weekly foursome. And I had a couple of choices. I could sit and watch him play tennis or I could go hit uh, balls against the garage door. And uh, so I would do that. And then every once in a while, he would let me. Uh, sneak in and hit with a couple of the guys in the foursome that he had going, you know, in between sets. I thought that was pretty cool. And uh, it sort of, sort of hooked me on, on playing tennis and really not being able to play tennis is what probably made me want to play tennis. Interesting stuff. And Bill, I mean, you know, some kids when they would tag along with their dad, you know, maybe half of them would not be interested in playing. So what in particular about tennis was it that attracted you to the sport? Well, for, you know, I think some, some kids are fascinated by balls and sports and some are not. And, and I just happened to get that gene. So, you know, it was fun for me to watch how, how all the guys had a great time on the court. And I would, you know, see how one person would, uh, you know, work out a way to win a point. And, and, you know, it was just fun for me to watch. I, I just was very intrigued by the whole thing. And, and uh, you know, being I developed a little bit of skill at it at an early age, so it was fun to do. I didn't have to pick up the ball all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I also uh, had this uh, vision of being able to knock a hole in our garage door someday. And, <laughs> And I kept working on it. There was a loose board there, and I was sure I could do it. I never did. But anyway, wow. it, was, it was a great inspirer. Very cool. Very cool, Bill. And before we get into a bit about your very interesting career in tennis, I just want to ask you this fun question that some guests you know, have more trouble with than others, but I'm sure you'll get through it, Bill. But what are three things that most of the world doesn't know about Bill Kellogg? Well, I, that's an interesting Interesting question. I've got uh, 
I think one of them you alluded to earlier is that uh, I was a linesman and a chair umpire at Wimbledon in my early days. Uh, I uh, actually, uh, my uh, major sport in high school was soccer. Uh, I was actually captain of my high school soccer team and not captain of my tennis team. And the, and then the uh, the other major uh, part of the uh, of the school curriculum where I went, I went to a place called Thatcher School, and it was built around a horse program. So I've got a very strong background in in horseback riding, packing horses into the Sespe National Forest, and that type of thing. My my mother uh, actually ran a stable, so so I, I've got some. Uh, some different sorts of backgrounds and, you know, I'm, I was brought up doing all sorts of things, skiing. I had to play, uh, you know, I didn't have to, I got to play uh, little league baseball and had to make a decision between tennis and baseball, you know, in my early teens. Those are a couple of things that, uh, that maybe a lot of people don't know about me. Wow. Wonderful stuff. I really like uh, how athletic you are, Bill. So many different sports. And I got to ask you too, because you said that you played soccer seriously and uh, obviously tennis, and then uh, we'll get into how you, you know, played pro soon after that. So, so how did the soccer and tennis coexist together? You know, did one help the other and the, how, how did you, were they different seasons and how did that all work out? First of all, in high school is really where I, I got into playing soccer a lot. And I was lucky because the soccer season was in the fall and tennis season for the guys was in the spring. So I could easily do both sports. And, you know, I think that uh, soccer is, is, a, is, is a great translation to tennis from a footwork side of it. When you, uh, you know, have to uh, figure out how far you are away from a ball and, and end up kicking it with the with the correct foot and, you know, the, the footwork that you use to defend in a in soccer, very, very similar to what you do on a tennis court. So uh, I thought it was uh, really uh, something that, that helped. One thing that was very surprising to me is I, I played center half in soccer and ended up, you know, being able to run the whole game. I played the whole game and run up and down the field back and forth. And I didn't play any tennis while during the soccer season. So, you know, I get back on the tennis court and it was amazing to me, uh, how I would be completely out of breath and and uh, out of out of shape for tennis, in spite of the fact that I could run for miles <laughs> on the on the soccer field. When I got to uh, college, I had visions of playing on the uh, on the tennis team and the soccer team, but that got squashed quickly because I ended up finding out that uh, the soccer and the tennis season were uh, both at the same time. I had to be on either training for one or the other. I, I couldn't do both because they, they were simultaneous. So I ended up choosing tennis uh, over soccer. But anyway, that was, uh, you know, it, it, that, that was sort of the end of my soccer career. But uh, I, I really think it had a lot to do with building strong legs and just a general overall athletic ability that's translated very well to tennis. Wow, that is very cool. And also very interesting, too, though, that you, as you mentioned, after the soccer season, when you'd go and play tennis, you'd still be out of breath. And I guess, you know, that's something to be said about specificity in, uh, in your training and I guess you know, tennis has different intervals and things like that. Yeah, you don't you don't really realize it, but uh, tennis is a bunch of short, sharp bursts, basically a lot of sprints. And when you get into long distance running, like on a soccer field, it's really more of uh, generating a uh, a rhythm, and it, and it's not a start and stop so much. I mean, there's certainly some of that, but but uh, it's uh, it, it's just uh, really surprised me. Uh, how different they are in terms of uh, you know, just being able to be fit for that particular sport. 
Yeah, definitely, Bill. And you know, you you think at first, I get at first thought, at least for me, because you know, I would think of soccer as you're sometimes going at a, a slow pace and then you'll sprint occasionally. But I, I guess it's still kind of different with the uh, recovery and and all that. Right. It's just the frequency of of how often you sprint because tennis is every point is pretty important. <laughs> yeah, super important. So great stuff again, Bill. So as far as your tennis playing career, how did you end up deciding to play pro tournaments after high school? Well, I, I ended up getting to uh, take a uh, a summer trip to Europe and uh that was a, that was an interesting experience because that was I mentioned the fact that I got to umpire at Wimbledon. My my uh, initial stop uh, in Europe was to go to London for for the championships, and I you know sort of walked up to the door unannounced, and you know I asked if they could use somebody to help with the tournament, and you know, the guard sort of looked at me strangely, <laughs> and, and I said, "Are you kidding?" And he said, well, I'm a tennis player in Southern California. Could I at least look at center court, you know? And, and he was very nice and opened the door and and allowed me and the guy I was traveling with, who's my doubles partner, to uh, go in and uh, and see the see the center court uh, stadium. And while we're walking around there, uh, a uh, somebody from the office uh, had found out we were there and came running up and said, you know, hey, would you like to? Uh, uh, he said we could use another couple of people because they're somehow they were short. And I said, uh, you know, can you uh, can you report for duty? And I think it was like in three days. You know, did you do you have a blazer? And <laughs> yeah, I do. And <laughs> he said, okay, here's a rule book. Handed me the rule book, and uh, and uh, I showed up and started umpiring matches. So, uh, it, but uh, I was actually I should say as a linesman to begin with. But uh, one of the things that happened while I was there is that uh, right in front of the uh, of the window that sent uh, all the matches out to the courts, the control window, uh, a lot of tournament promoters would hang out around that window. And when they discovered that I was from California and I was a tennis player and so forth, uh, they, they started offering me opportunities to play in tournaments in Europe uh, after Wimbledon was over. So the first uh, first one that I got to play in was the Irish Open in Dublin, and uh, then they had another one on the uh, on the West Coast. I'd written ahead to a couple of tournaments, so I had a a couple of commitments uh, to to play, and so I ended up uh, getting to play in Dublin, Ireland. I played a uh, a tournament in uh, in the country in France, and then I went to Switzerland, played at the Palace Hotel in. And I played in Gestad and Bastad and traveled to Italy. And uh, it was a, it was an incredible fun summer and, uh, you know, got to play with and against some amazing people. So it was, uh, it was, it was really a, a dream and uh, something that uh, I really uh, enjoyed doing. Wow. That is really incredible, Bill. And so after that experience, I mean, what was your mindset? Did you think, uh, or did you at least consider, doing it again or turning pro or anything like that? Or like, what was your thought process in, in deciding your next steps after that experience? You know, it's funny how you, you make great plans and, and uh, God laughs and sends you in a different direction. You know, I uh, when I went to college, I, I actually had visions of being an engineer. And so, you know, after my summer tour there, I I uh, you know went back to college and and my major was engineering science and 
you know, I, I really thought that that's what I would end up doing rather than being a professional tennis player. Although I enjoyed it and I loved it and I, I really, you know, would have liked the opportunity, but I just felt like, you know, I, I should do some real work. So, so anyway, I, I, uh, Ended up uh, graduating from uh, Dartmouth College in uh, the uh, summer of 1973, and I uh, worked uh, a little bit at a tennis ranch up in uh, Big Bear, California, uh, for Dick Leach. He he and Bill France, a couple of uh, important tennis people in the Southern California uh, world, uh, were just starting to build, uh, you know, they had their camp and they were starting to build tennis clubs. And at the end of the summer, uh, right before I was enrolled to go back to uh, graduate school in engineering, my doubles partner, the same guy that I went to Europe with, his name is Kevin Clark. Uh, he, uh, I think it was about August 31st and, and you know, the, the school year was supposed to start on about September 12th. And, he, I went down to play tennis with him in uh, Lacey Park in San Marino, and uh, he uh, asked me if I would, uh, you know, you know. He told me I, he, that his dad was had just built a tennis club, and he was going to give up his job there at uh, working for Dick Leach, and asked me if I had ever thought about teaching tennis. You know, I'd been going to school for a lot of years, and I, and at that moment in time. You know, I I talked to my dad about it a little bit, and he actually had said to me, "You know, it's not such a bad idea to take a year off, uh, you know, and get refreshed." So uh, when Kevin told me about this job, it sounded pretty interesting. I said, "Okay," I said, "You know, I'll I'll give that some thought." Uh, when do you know what do I do? And he says, "Well, show up tomorrow morning at eight o'clock in the morning, and uh, and you can teach the lesson I was supposed to teach tomorrow because I got to go out and work for my dad." And so, so I did. I showed up at eight o'clock the next morning and taught my first tennis lesson, and uh, and then I uh, I got I started working uh, for Dick uh, Dick Leach, and he uh, he actually showed taught me how to handle lessons and clinics and and uh, the business of the of the pro shop and how to string rackets and you know how to uh, really develop my skills as a as a tennis player. Uh, and and so I and I ended up getting to play some terrific uh, tennis with Dick and with the people that he typically hung out with. So I I got into that business, and then then a year later he opened a tennis club out in Westlake Village, and he asked me. Uh, I was actually interviewing for a job with an engineering firm at the time, but he asked me, you know, would you be interested to uh, in going out and uh, running this club for me because he had his own business. And, uh, he and, and he and his partner, uh, each had an assistant pro. So I was his, and there was another guy named Richard Tripp. And the two of us were sent out to Westlake village to open up the Westlake tennis and swim club in Westlake village. And, uh, we got in there at the, on the ground level, they were just building the clubhouse at that time. And we had to develop the, uh, the programs for, uh, you know, marketing the the club memberships. We had to uh, figure out the accounting systems for the for the uh, for the club. We had to uh, understand pool chemistry because the you know we had a big giant uh, uh, Olympic sized pool that we had to handle. I had to understand uh, gardening because we had a lot of grounds to take care of and learn how to wash tennis courts and all that stuff. 
And, uh, you know, it was an incredible education. It was probably better than going to a graduate school, frankly. And uh, by the, uh, you know, by the, before I knew it, uh, I had a new career and I, you know, I was, I had employees, I had to do payroll, I had to do insurance, you know, plus Richard and I were, uh, you know, switching off teaching tennis lessons and, and uh, then I'd go out on the weekends and, and play a few pro tournaments in Southern Cal and so that I could stay sharp and be able to be out there ahead of my students. So that's sort of how I ended up in the tennis business. It, it wasn't something that I really thought I was going to do. But, uh, you know, sometimes uh, your passion takes over and, and uh, that certainly turned out to be mine. So I'm glad it went the way it did. Yeah, uh, we are as well. Uh, that's really an incredible journey there, Bill. And so I definitely uh, have a few questions based on what you just mentioned. And so the first is kind of taking a step back to your first lesson that you ever taught. So once you were told that you were you know, to appear at 8 a.m. the next day to teach your first lesson, I was curious if you can remember how you prepared for that lesson, if at all, and then secondly, what Dick ended up, uh, some of the pointers that he ended up giving you for maybe for some novice or even experienced instructors to kind of pick up some tips uh, from. Well, sure. I, I can remember that, that first le- lesson pretty vividly because I was I was petrified. I was scared to death. What in the world do I do for a lesson? You know, I, as a tennis player, you know, you, you basically do stuff instinctively and, you know, you don't really think about it. And, and so now somebody is asking me to go out and start thinking about, you know, how you hit a tennis ball and, and how you should and so forth. Uh, I ended up, uh, I, I think, uh, giving a volley lesson to a person out there, which, you know, was not a difficult thing to do. And, and, uh, and I was, a, I was a, a natural server. I could, I could uh, help people uh, learn how to serve quite easily. So, you know, that first lesson was something that I didn't have any way to prepare for. I just showed up and uh, I, I got through it and actually uh, developed a, a lifelong lesson follower from, from that uh, first experience. But, uh, w- but what I did do is I very quickly got uh, brought into Dick Leach's uh, lesson clinics. He had, uh, had a, a group of ladies uh, and uh, he'd call it his large ladies clinic. It wasn't a, it wasn't a description of the players. He had thirty two. <laughs> we always laughed about that. But uh, he had a he had a, an incredible system for running people through paces that were really helpful to develop them as tennis players. And what he would do, I mean, he would start off with the basics of you know how do you hit a forehand and a backhand and radio volley and, and so forth. And, and he had some, you know, a lot of very uh, straightforward, uh, simple techniques for people to learn to actually become uh, good at tennis fairly quickly. And, uh, you know, I'd never thought about the mechanics of it before. And so I, I picked those up immediately. I was just fascinated by the way he approached things. Once, once the ladies uh, learned, uh, you know, how to just hit some basic shots. Then he started getting into strategy on the courts. And, uh, again, I'd always done this stuff instinctively, but I started learning basically the geometry of a tennis court and, and the angles and, you know, where you should or should not hit the ball. 
I never even thought about that before as a kid, you know, you just go out there and, and, and hit wherever you want. And, and, uh, <laughs> I, I could see that if I had, uh, encountered Dick uh, at a much earlier age, I probably would have been a much better tennis player because, uh, you know, I was a kid that just liked to hit the ball as hard as I could. And of course, wear out the backdrop as fast as I could. But, but uh, uh, you know, I ended up uh, becoming a much, much smarter player as a result of uh, teaching those lessons on the court. And, uh, you know, he's got a system on it. It's, it's, it'd take a while to explain it to you. But it it is uh, scientific. It really works. And uh, if you look at the pros on TV, you can see what they're doing. And it really opened my eyes to a lot of things. And I, I read a few books, one of them that I can remember vividly that, that helped me as an instructor a lot. And even as a player was The Inner Game of Tennis by Tim Galway. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, that that also helped me. So, you know, it was an evolution. I was learning as I went and I was, I was learning by doing, which I think is probably one of the most effective ways to learn. For sure, Bill. And that is also incredible. And uh, my next question that it popped up in my head about, you know, do you just learning on the go? I mean, you, there's so many different skills that you had to learn that you had never learned in school. I mean, even things like gardening and obviously accounting systems and hiring, I'm sure, and all these. I mean, what are some tips? Because it's actually very interesting that we had Tim Bainton on episode 84, the previous uh, episode, where he's also uh, an expert in uh, developing clubs and improving them and, and marketing and such. And so it's a great episode, by the way, to check out. Um, but so how did you learn all these different skills? Did you kind of contract out or did you, you know, what what did you do? What's the secret here? <laughs> well, well, I started off, you know, I, here I graduated from an Ivy League college and, and uh, I can I can remember one of the uh, most embarrassing experiences of my life was on the day that I was supposed to uh, go to the accounting office after getting my degree and I and I'm supposed to settle up my student account, and the uh, the guy in the office uh, told me that I owed I don't know three hundred and eighty four dollars and seventy cents or something to before I could leave the campus. And so I sat down to write out a check, and uh, <laughs> the the way I I don't think I'd ever written a check for that large an amount before, and I started writing, and I didn't know how to. Uh, how to properly write out the amount on the check. Mm-hmm. And the guy just rolled his eyes and, and told <laughs> me, he said, you know, no, you gotta, you gotta do it this way. And, uh, so I, that became, you know, something that sort of stuck in my mind. And, and uh, as a result, I realized I needed a, a little bit more education. I'd actually taken an accounting class, but, uh, in college, but it was not a very good class. And, and I didn't learn a whole heck of a lot. So while I was teaching tennis during the day, what I did was I enrolled in Pasadena City College night classes, and I actually en- enrolled in an, in an accounting course that took me through the basics. I learned I learned about debits and credits and and uh, how to do the accounting cycle and uh, how to read a financial statement and so forth. And I have to say that I think that was one of the most valuable things that I ever did. Uh, because later on, it enabled me to then start, uh, you know, developing budgets and doing the billing for our for our club and so forth. So I, I, I actually took some initiative outside of just teaching tennis lessons to go out and uh, and uh, educate myself a little bit. Uh, I, you know, I did a lot of reading. I, I had a uh, 
I had an, uh, a, a, an early working knowledge of computers because at Dartmouth, they, one of the things they did was they had, uh, had the basic, the, the inventor of the basic computer language was the dean of the college. Wow. And they, and they required every course in college to use computers. They give you free access to the Kiewit Computational Center there at Dartmouth College. And so every student in the college going through there actually had a working knowledge of how to program a computer by the time they graduated. And of course, in the engineering classes and stuff, I, I, you know, got fairly adept at doing that. So when I got out, I started using uh, my computer skills to uh, uh, develop a program to track the accounting for the club out at the Westlake Tennis and Swim Club. And it turns out that one of my lessons was a professional computer programmer. So he and I, you know, he told me, he said, well, you should write a program to do this. And so he said, well, I will if you'll help me. So so he and I got together and, and worked again in our off hours to uh, to do that. And then, then we uh, actually developed a little word processor of our own so I could write the monthly club newsletter. And, uh, you know, I, I'd do that on the computer and send that out. And then, uh, uh, you know, for the for the uh, gardening, uh, we actually did hire a gardener, but I I ended up uh, having to work with him to decide where you know how you landscape a, a steep bank of a hill and what the watering schedules were and how to fix the sprinklers and do all of that. And that was just that was really just out in the field. I didn't go to courses for that, but but I'd uh, I'd had some uh, some uh, actually. Uh, I'd been exposed to that a little bit growing up because my my dad was an engineer and he he had taught me how to fix sprinkler heads and do things before I even got there. So I had that and the, the pool chemistry. Uh, you know that's one of those things that you just get out and you you learn uh, by reading the manuals and and uh, and I had a a uh, person that had to come out and help us with the pool chemistry. But you you learn to do that by watching and working with the guy. It's all hands on. So, you know, these are these are skills, but I, I think they're, you know, that uh, a little bit of self-education and reading a few books can go a long way. Wow, Bill. Uh, very impressive stuff. And I mean, just, you know, listening to all the stuff you did and also reading your LinkedIn profile about, it's like, it seems like, what is, 20 different duties that you that you uh, took hold of <laughs> there. Uh, I guess I'll read it because it's fun. You know, hired, fired, trained employees, all human resources functions, the pool chemistry, lesson programs, handled mark, wrote and signed checks, did bank reconciliations, owned and operated a tennis shop inside the club. I mean, there's, there's more grounds maintenance. So how did you manage your time during all this, you know, because I mean, there's some people that would take all day doing one of these things. How, how was the, how did you manage your time and do everything? Well, you know, when you're young and you're not married, you don't have a family, uh, you can sort of dedicate your life to your job. And so, you know, I can re- basically, when I was working at the Westlake Tennis and Swim Club, it was myself and my friend and my partner, Richard Tripp. And uh, what we would do literally was just divide up the day so that we could each work on, on various tasks at different times. So, you know, he, he was also a, 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 a tennis pro, a teacher. And so yeah, I can remember we would have times where, you know, my lessons, let's say, would start at eight o'clock in the morning and I would uh, teach till 10 o'clock. And then, then Richard's Lessons would start at 10 o'clock and go to 12. And we sort of had this moment where we would have to do a fast switch 
And he'd go from the clubhouse answering the phone and doing some of the books in the background and to racing out to the tennis court. And I'd go racing in, just answer the phone and help the customers in the tennis shop and, and do all that. But, uh, you know, we ended up, uh, you know, working together. It, it's, it was a seven day a week, you know, and, and way more than 12 hours a day because uh, we would literally the, the lessons would start at seven o'clock in the morning and then we would work for until 10 o'clock or 12 o'clock at night uh, to finish up the books and count the cash in the shop and, you know, do the, do the, whatever the, you know, the daily cashier's report and all those types of things. So it was really, it was, it was uh, just dedicating yourself to, to really doing everything. As a young kid, you just don't seem to realize that there's limits to anything. So I just, I, I worked very hard. Uh, and I got pretty good. You know, I, what I did is I developed systems for handling various things, so that so that uh, it became a an, a routine that was not very difficult to accomplish. And you you can do a whole lot of different things if you have a little bit of structure to it. And and so I developed a, a lot of structure, and uh, and I also hired a few people that uh, that were very good at at what they did. And, uh, you know, that when you hire people, you multiply your ability to get stuff done. So I, you know, I got some, some assistant tennis pros to help with our, our lessons in our clinics, just like Dick Leach had done with me, you know, I hired, and then, you know, hired people to work in the tennis shop, uh, a couple of gals that were very good figuring out uh, what styles of ladies dresses and, and peds and things that, and shoes that we would should buy. And, you know, so we uh, we divvied up the the duties. So part of it is uh, developing people under you that can do things well, and that's really the secret to handling a lot of things. You cannot do it all yourself. You have to use other people. So a lot there's a lot of effort going into setting it up. But once you set it up and train people, you can maximize your uh, ability to accomplish things. Wonderful stuff, Bill. Uh, great advice there as well. And maybe one last question about this. You you mentioned systems, and it's extremely important. You know, you hear a lot of people who uh, do extremely well in this this world, and they talk about the secret of success is systems. So you did mention obviously that you created some financial systems, but in general, what's an example of a system that you are talking about here? I mean, is it an SOP or something like that, or can you can you kind of delve into that a little bit? Well, it's not so much an SOP. I don't think too many people have time to read. A, uh, a manual <laughs> procedures. It is helpful to uh, write down the sequence in which you which you do things, so that if if you have to hand the job off to another person, it's a to do list and how how you get things done. So basically, the closing procedure at the end of the day for the tennis shop, you needed to do a few things. You know, you 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 sell some shoes, you collect some money, you uh, uh, order some things, you do other things. So at the end of the day. You've got to uh, collect collect the money, do the sales receipts, uh, and set them up uh, into the accounting records, so that at the uh, end of the month you can uh, produce the reports that you have to do to file your your uh, payroll taxes and so forth. So you, what you have to do is develop a routine, and and it helps if you if you write some of that stuff down. So yes, I I would uh, write uh, up little procedures for for how you would uh, do the daily cashier's report and and uh, how you would uh, find the numbers from that report to put into your state board of equalization reports to you know pay the appropriate sales tax and then uh, you know when you had to do payroll you know what are the steps that you go through there to to do it so so uh, 
you know, jotting stuff down and, and developing routines for doing things is, is extremely important. And I, I think that sometimes, it, particularly in the early years, I was probably more about uh, about teaching verbally and doing things. Uh, in my current job, it's, it's uh, larger, more complex. And so, yes, we have a standard operating manual and we've got, uh, you know, our employee reference guide and we've, we've got uh, uh, all sorts of reviews that we do all the time. But uh, when you're just a two-man operation uh, working, you know, by yourself to handle all sorts of things, it's, it, it's, uh, it comes down to uh, the routine that you, you develop and how you communicate that well to others. So uh, I, when you talk about systems and procedures with computers, I, you know, I developed, uh, you know, some notebooks that contained all of the coding for the, for the accounting software and, uh, and for producing a newsletter and how you, you know, how you save it and how you store it and, you know, how do you call it and, and all those types of things. So, so uh, I'm not sure I fully answered your question there, but it, it, it was an interesting time to, try to get better at everything you did instead of forgetting what you did and having to relearn it. Yeah, no, you, you've definitely fully answered uh, my question on that about, uh, you know, just writing down uh, the procedures that you're going through so that it can be, say, if you were to have to go to a vacation or leave, you know, someone else could pick right back up. So wonderful stuff there. So, Bill, obviously you ended up now that, you, you know, now you're leading the way at uh, La Jolla. So how did your family, and I kind of read up on this before, more for the audience, uh, how did your family end up convincing you to lead the way at La Jolla? Well, my uh, younger brother, Bob, uh, he actually came to work for my dad here at the La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club right out of college. And he uh, he probably started working down here in about 1972 or thereabouts. Uh, and he, uh, he, he was uh, pretty frustrated with, uh, with the way things were working because People have been doing things the same way for many, many years, and he saw new ways to do stuff, and nobody wanted to change. So he was he was looking for how how can I you know bring somebody in that that would uh, make a difference. Uh, simultaneously, uh, I ended up getting married and uh, having my first child uh, while I was out at Westlake, and I can remember uh, distinctly uh, I'd, I'd wake up. Uh, after my first daughter was born, Tiffany, she, I, I'd wake up at, uh, you know, to go teach my tennis lessons at seven o'clock in the morning before she woke up. And then I'd work all day and have to handle the, the uh, men's clinics in the evenings up until about nine or 10 o'clock at night. And of course, by the time I got home, you know, she'd gone to bed and uh, it got to a point where I, uh, you know, the, the, my baby would look at me and start screaming because she didn't know who I was. And, uh, uh, you know, so my wife and I talked about it a lot. And, and it turns out that Dick Leach at that time was getting uh, ready to uh, sell the tennis club. And, uh, and it also turned out that the general manager at the La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club, a guy named Bill Bond Sr., uh, had, uh, had retired in the summer of 1979. So uh, my brother uh, actually gave me a call. Uh, I, in July of that year, and I, and he said, you know, he says uh, you should think about coming to uh, work for the family business, which I had deliberately avoided. I, I, I did not 
think I was ever going to work for the family. I wanted to make my own way and, and do things my way and, and so forth. But uh, when I started thinking about the family pressures and and uh, working seven days a week, you know, my brother came to me and said, you know, uh, if you came to work at the beach club, you could work uh, hours that were like uh, – uh, nine to five and only six days a week. And I said, we've got some staff that can do things. And I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> that sounded like a dream job. And, uh, and so, uh, you know, I talked to my wife about it when I realized they were about to sell the tennis club and I, and I didn't know that was happening at the time. So I, I was a little bothered by that and realizing that my fate was not in my own hands and I'm working this hard and not developing any, uh, equity in the business, so that that was a that was sort of an eye opener. I, I sort of thought about that and said, you know, this could disappear in a moment. You, you know, sell it to somebody else, and and uh, that new owner may want to come in and do what I'm doing, and I'm out. So uh, when my brother came and talked to me, I said, ah, I'm going to suck it up, and uh, I called my dad and and talked to him, and he said, yeah, he thinks he has a place for me, and uh, he said, come on down, and he, and uh, if you make the move, he says he'll. Uh, you know, integrate me into the business and, and we'll take it one step at a time. So I, uh, I can remember packing up the car with the kids and the dogs and everything. And, and we drove to La Jolla and found our, our new home. And, and uh, I have a cartoon on the wall of my office that shows a janitor taking the sign off a broom closet and putting up uh, a title for the next VP which was uh, supposedly me coming in, and that's pretty much the way it worked. And uh, you know, my dad had had one one thing he wanted me to do every day, and that was he wanted me to start out the day by meeting with him at nine o'clock every morning. And uh, you know, here I'd been running a club and in charge of everything, and now I'm working for him. So it was a that was that was a, a little bit of a change for me. But uh, you know, I came in and, and started learning how the business worked and. And then he he gave me various things that uh, I needed to do uh, on a daily basis. But really, what we would do is we pick areas of the club that needed to be improved. And uh, as a as a pretty good example, uh, we had a switchboard at the front desk that had the the plug and pull cords. You may remember those in the days of Lil, Lily Tomlin, where you you know have the headset on and you. you talk to the person as you're connecting the extension you know we needed to modernize that and so uh, one of my projects was to replace this the uh, switchboard in the in the telephone system at the club and so you know in doing that we had to go to a digital system and had to renumber all the rooms because you couldn't exactly dial apartment h on a telephone you, you know you had, had to get an extension so you know so i i became very familiar with uh with the with those systems, uh, and I had to take our uh, our accounts payable. Uh, we actually had a computer uh, to run our. I should go start off with the payroll, and uh, that had a uh, one of those computers where you drop the uh, cardboard slips into the into the bin, and it would you know thumb through. Didn't have a uh, monitor. It would just produce uh, the paychecks using these uh, these pre-printed cards, uh, and so we needed to evolve on that. And, and uh, computers were just coming out, so my my computer background, working out at Westlake and all of that, put me in a spot where I could uh, go into the accounting 
department and uh, actually introduced computers. And we actually got, uh, you know, a full-size accounts payable system that I instituted. Introducing Coco Golf's signature shoe, more than just a tennis shoe. It's a fusion of 90s-inspired style and cutting-edge performance technology with its sleek mid-cut silhouette. It's designed to enhance speed and power on the court. The multi-piece upper construction delivers high-energy return for players of all levels. Whether you're a seasoned pro or just starting out, the Coco CG1 empowers you to dominate the game. Learn more and purchase the Coco CG1 at NewBalance.com. I redid the, uh, the payroll system. Uh, I ended up having to uh, uh, develop a uh, computer process for the uh, purchasing department. Uh, then we had a lot of projects. We had to renovate a lot of our rooms, so I had to work with uh, contractors to you know, rebuild every room on the property, starting at the south end and going to the north and back again. Now what, I, what I ended up doing by making that move is I got to be very familiar with every aspect of, of the property. It was, didn't matter whether it's a housekeeping department or the engineering department or the accounting department or the insurance policies. Or, you know, I, I ended up dealing at one time or another with all of those. So uh, by, the, uh, by the time of uh, 10 years later, my dad passed away. And uh, it turns out that my brother and I were the, the two most knowledgeable people in the company and in the family to run the property. And so uh, the, the rest of the family Family members uh, voted us in to to take over the leadership position at the club, and I was the older brother, and my brother uh, agreed to to be the vice president, and I became the president. And so, uh, but we worked together as a team to try to solve the issues that faced us in those days, and, and we went through a, a very big change uh, in our family to move from a family trust type of business to a, a family partnership. So. A lot of a lot of changes that we went through, and really, what had happened is that, that I had developed enough uh, on the ground expertise at every level of the company to understand how it all fit together and how it worked. So it turned out that I was the natural pe- person to uh, step in and uh, and keep things running. Uh, I, I didn't even mention the tennis tournaments. I mean, I, I started off running national tennis tournaments in, in December of 1979. I. I took over where Bill Bond had left off and ended up running the National Father Sons and, and the National 45s. And anyway, we, I learned how to run and, and execute a uh, a full fledged national championship. Uh, and you know, I actually computerized that process as well. So anyway, a lot of stuff along the way that uh, gave me a terrific background for doing what I'm doing. Yeah, a lot of impressive stuff indeed. And I'm also very impressed that you and your brother, you know, just you expose yourself to all the facets, you know, so that you knew what was going on. And I think, you know, when somebody does that, as opposed to just isolating themselves and, and uh, you know, they'll they'll have a more successful business. And so basically from what you, you know, how you answered my previous question, I feel like I kind of know the answer to this question. But I want to ask you, you know, in the world of especially, you know, where I'm from uh, on the East Coast, I've seen a lot of clubs closed down, and yet La Jolla, uh, if I'm my research is correct, is has been running for over 90 years. So I, I'm just wondering what the key or some keys are to having a very successful and long uh, living <laughs> tennis club. First of all, we have a terrific location. You can't take that away from us. But the reason we're here and a lot of clubs aren't is because I think we've reinvented ourselves in many ways. My dad. Uh, started a pro when 
think about, uh, you know, this club started, uh, my great grandfather purchased it in 1935. So by the time I got here in 1979, basically a half a century had elapsed. And you can imagine, you know, you take anything and let it be exposed to uh, heavy use for 50 years, it's going to start falling apart, right? Well, my dad actually uh, was was pretty uh, smart about how he did things. And, and he actually started a program of reinvesting in the property. He started actually plowing a million dollars a year from the proceeds uh, of the business back into redeveloping the property. So you're Remember, I, I talked about dealing with construction companies. Well, that it was a direct result of that decision on his part that we renovated every every single room on the property, all of our common areas, the swimming pool, the tennis courts, the golf courts. I mean, we we did everything on the property over a period of you know thirty years or twenty years that uh, that I can think of. And uh, so, so that was one thing. So we we kept the property fresh without changing its feel. And then the other the other thing that uh, that the family has done that I think has been very very uh, smart is we uh, actually had checked the demographics of the club in about 1992, and we found that the average age of the club was about 65 years old uh, for a member, and that was and it was going up. It was getting worse. So you were talking about some clubs that that went to extinction, and and what you know the tendency is you know when you've got the uh, the dues-paying member, he's going to say, hey, I want to use the tennis court, kick that kid off the court because he's not paying the bill. I am. And, you know, so you sort of put the juniors in, in a second-class spot and you uh, start to, you know, targeting everything for, for the older part of your uh, of your membership. And, you know, that works for a while, but the trouble is they start getting older and they start dying off and your and your club starts become becoming less relevant. So, we, uh, we, as a family, we made a conscious effort to try to rejuvenate the club. One of the things that we did is we started offering uh, time payment plans for uh, juniors, uh, for kids of current members, so that when they got to the age of 25, that they could actually afford to uh, buy their own membership. And then we, uh, and then we started adding programs and changed our policies, changed the way our lesson programs work. So we started offering, you know, active clinic programs, and you know, we've we have a kids camp in the summer, and we've we've done a whole bunch of things that have made it a lot more interesting to young families to be members of the of the of our club, as opposed to just people that are octogenarians. And the result was that uh, our average age today is now about 42. So you know, that's that's a gigantic change from uh, when you're looking. You know, we've got about 1,400 memberships in the club. So when you when you look at that, that that's a big big change. And and I think it has helped us keep the club relevant uh, over those years. And and what you'll see when you come down here is you'll see families having fun. You'll see kids. You know, we're we are about uh, kids and families. We're not just about the the senior members of the club. And I think that's that the kids are the future of the club. Because you know, if you're not if you're not bringing them back into the fold when they get to the age where they can afford a club membership, then uh, then you're going to lose out over time. So I, you know, I think keeping the property uh, in good repair, changing with the times a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, we've uh, you know we relaxed our dress code rules so that you know don't have to wear a coat and tie. 
to go into our restaurants. You know, it's it. We've kept it current. You know, we we do have internet here now. And, uh, <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> you know, exactly. So so the club has evolved, and and it's also refocused on making it uh, a younger experience uh, for people. So and I think it's fun for the older folks too. I, I, I think in the end, they actually enjoyed that, but a lot of clubs fall into the trap of not rejuvenating. And I, I think that's, that's a major focus that, that you need to have if you want to be around for the long haul. Yeah, definitely. Bill, if, if, if you're out there and you're a club owner or a coach, I highly encourage you to hit the 30 second rewind button, maybe f- five or six times and uh, listen in on that again. Some great tips, Bill. We appreciate that. And so, you know, as I alluded to in your intro, you have had many positions uh, really contributing a lot to the tennis world. And one of these positions was being a USTA section president as well as a co-chair of USTA's Davis Cup and Fed Cup committee. So I wanted to ask you what that experience was like for you, uh, especially with regards to the Davis and Fed Cup duties. Well, I, I, I am very indebted to Franklin Johnson, who's a former USGA president from Southern California, who, uh, when he became president, appointed me uh, to the Davis Cup committee. And, and actually, I became a chair of the Davis Cup committee and and later uh, also of the Davis Cup and Fed Cup committees. And that afforded me an amazing opportunity to uh, uh, do things that would support our Davis Cup teams. So as an example, I've been able to travel all over the world uh, to to ties. Uh, and, you know, so I've, I've been to Croatia and I've been to uh, Germany and, and I've, I've been to I've been all over the place helping to you know put these ties on on behalf of the US and then at home uh I ended up actually hosting a couple of ties one of the we hosted right here at the La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club so uh you know I I got to uh, uh learn the inside uh and out you know what it takes to put on an event like that you know we had to build a stadium court and and had to uh market the tickets and you know, figure out the travel packages and, and uh, you know, do all the stuff that and, and do this, the fundraising to make it all happen. Uh, so it's really been an incredible experience. You know, it's fun to meet the team members and so forth. But really, the uh, the job of being in that position is to engage the community in Davis Cup ties. So we would reach out to uh, uh, create kids clinics and to uh, uh, have events that would uh, give the media a reason to focus on bringing the tie to your city. And, uh, you know, so it, it, it added another dimension to experiences that, that, uh, that uh, you know, really contribute to just pro- promoting tennis in general. And, uh, you know, I found that very, very interesting. And when I was up at, uh, when I was the president of the Southern California Tennis Association, uh, also had the opportunity to uh, un- get into the inner workings of a professional tennis tournament because we had the uh, the uh, the men's professional tournament up in Los Angeles that they held at UCLA had a, a lot of different names. It started off as the Pacific Southwest and went through a lot of iterations 
uh, I think it was the Farmer's Classic before we, uh, in its later days, but I, I got to uh, see how a professional tournament works and uh, uh, meet all the people that, that make it happen. And, and uh, it was a lot like starting out at a tennis club. And you just get out in the field and you start doing stuff and you learn how things work. And uh, so it's, it's added a lot to my, uh, my background. And, uh, and of course, uh, I've met tons and tons of people around the world right now that make it so that uh, no matter where I travel, I've, I've got friends uh, everywhere I go. It's, it's a lot of fun. Awesome stuff, Bill, once again. And so you mentioned the, you know, the great efforts that you undertook to promote the tie through other events, such as kid, uh, you know, kid events and such, and just general marketing. So in your opinion, I mean, and you know, I haven't been around uh, Davis and Fed Cup ties. I don't really know what's going on these days, but do they still do these sorts of things? And uh, I mean, is there any difference from, from then and now besides the technologies and our, you know, do you think they're doing a good enough job of the promotion of, of Davis Cup? Well, I, I, think first of all you're asking at a time when they have just decided to change the format of davis cup mm, which they so, have again <laughs> yeah so it, it's a very different animal this year than it was last year and for the last 50 years before it the uh, uh you know this year they're going to have basically the world cup of uh, of nations for tennis uh in november where they bring uh all the nations to one spot and uh, you know they have one great big playoff for a week, so it's a little different than it has been up until then. Uh, you know they would have the home and away format with one country playing another country, uh, so two nations going to where the, either the home site of one nation or the home site of the other nation. So when we uh, held ties uh, while I was involved in it. Uh, it all focused on trying to activate the community in which the tie was held. And it was very nationalistic because you would come in and uh, it would be the U S against another country. And so, you know, when you, that, that creates a lot of interest and actually a lot of media promotion, you know, we would have uh, the, for instance, when it was in La Jolla, uh, you know, I got the uh, Youth Tennis San Diego, that, which is the, the junior arm of the district at that time, uh, to bring kids in to do the flag procession on the court. And they would supply the ball kids on the courts, and they would uh, hold a clinic where they would get the Davis Cup team out on the court, you know, with, uh, you know, six to 800 kids coming in from the surrounding areas to participate in a tennis festival that was all uh, themed around uh, around the Davis Cup match that was happening that weekend, and so there's a lot of stuff that would happen. I, and uh, it's a, it, it creates a, a way to to uh, to involve the community in professional tennis that a lot of times uh, tournaments don't really achieve. So, you know, I I don't know. Uh, you know, that format still sort of exists for players that aren't at the, uh, in the world group. Uh, I shouldn't say sort of, it does exist. It, that, that original format exists. The United States team at this point is actually automatically into that world group playoff. So we won't have any ties for Davis Cup this year uh, in the United States uh, up, uh, because they're going to go to the world group. So that, that opportunity will disappear. But uh, on the other hand, it's it's been working very well for a lot of years, 
And I know throughout the world, it's one of the ways that uh, that you bring professional tennis to underdeveloped countries. And if they have a Davis Cup tie in their part of the world, it's probably the first time that uh, that the people in there in those areas have ever gotten to see up close some of the great players in the world. So it's it's an amazing opportunity to promote tennis, uh, but it is definitely changing. So it, the jury's out on on how it's working today versus uh, versus the the past few years. But uh, there's a lot that goes into it. For sure, Bill. Great stuff. And so, I mean, I obviously have to ask you this question, I guess. So what were your thoughts when you heard about the change? I mean, is this something that you think will work out? I mean, you know, the jury's out, but I mean, what what did you think? Did you think we should have stuck with what we had? Or is, you know, you think the change will be successful? I absolutely think a change had to happen. I don't think there was any choice in the matter when you looked at it. What I found is that increasingly uh, it became more and more difficult to attract the best players uh, to play uh, on a nation's team. That We were pretty lucky because we had at the United States because we had the Bryan brothers and then we had Andy Roddick and James Blake that were all top players that really had committed themselves to playing in the Davis Cup. But we also had some pretty notable absences in Davis Cup over the years. Uh, you know, if, if you look like look at Pete Sampras or Andre Agassi, and uh, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of of really uh, amazing players that really stopped participating in Davis Cup. And I'm not just talking about the United States; I'm talking about around the world. So the relevance of it was starting to become questionable. And and the thing that uh, just didn't make sense is that for players on the pro tour to participate in Davis cup, they had to be able to set aside uh, four periods of 10 days each to participate in Davis cup. So you start thinking about it. That's 40 days out of the year uh, with an active tournament calendar around it. And, and then they uh, they didn't earn any ATP points for playing in those Davis Cup matches, and the there was at least the United States paid paid a little bit of uh, of uh, uh, appearance money for the players that uh, participated on the team, but it was sort of token compensation versus what they would earn in, in uh, tournaments or exhibitions. So, for a player to uh, to represent his country, he had to agree to basically take a putt, cut and pay, uh, take a major amount of time out of his schedule to uh, to participate on the team, and he earned no points for doing that. So, so what we were seeing worldwide is the, the slow, I think, ultimate extinction of Davis Cup, while you ended up with uh, the Pro Tour coming in with the uh, uh, you know, with competing team formats. So you have the Labor Cup and you have the Hopman Cup and and others that were offering players prize money and, uh, you know, a much shorter time frame. I really think the days of Davis Cup were pretty numbered. So, uh, you know, when you uh, look at the new format, you have given the top players now a reason to get back on the court and represent their country because they will get ATP points. They will get prize money 
they don't have to commit as much of their schedule to doing it. And uh, frankly, I think when you bring uh, a bunch of nations together, as in a, a World Cup soccer event, uh, I think it's going to be uh, an amazing event. And you've got a, an incredible sponsor that's come in to help uh, help make it all work. So my uh, my answer is I'm actually uh, I actually think it's important that the ITF changed that format. They had to change it. I don't know if this is the exact correct uh, formula for it, but uh, I think it's got a lot of positives, and I really think people need to give it a try because without that. I think in a few years, we wouldn't even have a Davis Cup competition. It would disappear. Those are all uh, great points, Bill, for people to consider. I know there's obviously a lot of fans who I'd wish it had stayed the same, but you know, you definitely have to look at all sides of the coin, including from the player's view as well. So I uh, appreciate that. And as far as Davis Cup, I'm just curious about your maybe specific experience. You know, Was there one particular tie in some country that you that is most memorable for you? And uh, if so, uh, why? The ties that were most memorable for me, uh, I mean, I had, a, I had a couple of them. I, I had one crushing experience in, in Russia where we ended up with, uh, with a, uh, a tie score going into the, into the last rubber, the last match, and had uh, Andy Roddick playing uh, on clay uh, at the end of the weekend, and he played a match that lasted for about five hours. <laughs> He ended up uh, serving for the match, I believe, three times in the fifth set where he'd broken the other player and stepped up to the line to hold serve. How many times does Andy Roddick lose serve? In the big picture, not very often. They lost his serve enough and ended up losing, uh, it was something like 17-15 in the fifth set. <laughs> so that, that was it was an incredibly dramatic tie and, and it was, you know, really, really great tennis. Uh, but it was, it was, uh, heartbreaking. But then, uh, then the following year, uh, the United States made it back to the finals and so did Russia. And because this time, instead of it being in Russia, uh, we're in Portland, Oregon. Uh, we, uh, ended up, uh, having, you know, the home crowd advantage and, we had another very dramatic uh, tie, and I think it came down to the final match. And the U.S. ended up uh, winning it. I think Andy Roddick ended up winning that match. And, uh, you know, so we had the uh, joy of actually uh, bringing the Davis Cup home uh, while I was chair of that committee. And, and uh, so that put me sort of right in the middle of all the stuff that was happening. And you know, that was certainly an incredibly memorable moment uh, but I, but I had two other memorable moments, and, and really, they, they are the tie that we put on here in La Jolla. I, I have never really experienced the, the power of, of, the, of the Davis Cup uh, competition until that moment when we uh, actually built a tennis court out on our golf course. We had 5,000 people coming out to watch it, and it was, it was a incredibly special event had the blimp flying overhead had the stealth bomber come over and do an appearance and and uh you know we we had uh, some just amazing moments uh we we also had uh an, a, a very unusual situation as uh, the united states was playing romania in that match and 
the uh, second day of Davis Cup under the old format is always a doubles match, right? It's one match. And it turns out that uh, that uh, one of the Romanian players right at the end of the first set pulled a muscle in his rib cage that made it so that they had to default the match. Now, this is after about one hour of play, and you've got the stands filled with people that came to watch an afternoon of tennis. And they were very, very, I mean, potentially a disaster here for us. Uh, but uh, we had an interesting situation because we had Patrick McEnroe was the coach of the team. And you had John McEnroe, who was uh, actually working in the commentary booth. He was uh, in the in the TV booth up at the top of the stands. Uh, and then you had the Bryan twins playing doubles, of course, right? So uh, somebody somebody had the amazing idea to uh, to have a demonstration event uh, where we ended up pitting the Bryan brothers against the McEnroe brothers. And I can remember uh, when when they made that decision, uh, they did it uh, to the theme of Rocky's music, where you know Rocky climbing up the steps. And John McEnroe comes to the front of the booth and rips off his jacket like Superman. <laughs> and then, you, and then you, we got a, got an amazing exhibition. So I, I have people today that come back that were attending that match, and the only thing they can remember about the Davis Cup match was, do you remember when the when the McEnroe brothers played the Bryan brothers? And how often is that going to happen? But uh, it, it was uh, it was one of those moments that was uh, just truly magical. And then, uh, and then I and I had one other, and that was uh, when we ended up uh, uh, putting a building a clay court in left field down in Petco Park to host uh, the tie against Great Britain, and uh, just an incredible venue, an incredible spot, and uh, it just uh, it, it it was really a, another very very special moment. So. That's more than you asked me, but wow, yeah. no, no, that's that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Especially the uh, the one about the uh, brothers against the brothers. That that was uh, that was cool. Uh, you turned uh, you know a negative, I guess, into a big positive. And kudos to whoever thought about that. Brilliant, brilliant. And uh, Bill, so obviously our our whole aim is to improve uh, and grow the game of tennis. I'm actually vice president of the Montgomery County Tennis Association, and we're trying to do that in our county. And then obviously, you know, we're all trying to do that. So, what do you? think that the USTA and other organizations need to do to improve the state of tennis in in the United States and grow the game? Well, my experience with programs that have been successful, it comes down to the people in the local area. And so I really think the USTA needs to really focus on supporting the local uh, superheroes that are out there in the field making stuff happen. So you think about the impact that a Robert Landsdorp had on the on the Orange County community. Uh, in our area, we had a guy named Bill Folsom, uh, or I should say Wilbur Folsom, who uh, developed countless uh, top top players in the world. Had Teach Tennant, who developed Maureen Connolly. You had uh, uh, you know you had Vic Braden. You had uh, uh, you know just People that come out and they and they uh, are like the Pied Pipers, and to me, it's all about getting the kids into the game 
at a young age. Uh, they have so many opportunities right now uh, to play in sports. And, and I, I frankly don't think that tennis is capturing as much of the younger uh, population as it, as it needs to. And so when you start talking about trying to capture the, uh, the young people, uh, that comes back to the idea of family. So I think you've got to get families out on the tennis court together. You've got to create events that bring them, the mother and the father and the kid, uh, all having fun together on the court. And, and I think that will help, uh, help build tennis. Uh, you know, I don't think it's about, you know, it, it's the, you know, they've got the, uh, the new uh, emphasis on, red, orange, and green balls and the, and the lower bouncing tennis balls and shorter rackets and shorter courts. Those are all helpful tools, uh, but it all comes down to the people. And if you can get, get uh, a few parents to decide that they want to do what they did for soccer a few years ago and, or Little League Baseball you know, years before that, it comes down to getting those parents, instead of bringing their kids out to those other places, get them to bring them out to, uh, to the tennis court. It's, uh, it truly is a, a sport that uh, that uh, does a lot of good for you. Uh, you know, it, it trains uh, trains you in, in all sorts of ways, and you know, it's it's a sport for a lifetime. Pretty tough to get a football team together these days. You know, at my age, but uh, I can get a, a tennis and a, a doubles match together in split second and have a great time doing it. So. For sure, Bill. Sport of a lifetime. I and mean, like you said, I've seen people playing competitively even into their 90s and probably beyond. So it's incredible. Absolutely. And so, Bill, uh, I, you know, I obviously appreciate your time so much. I know we've been speaking for a while today and I've enjoyed every minute. But uh, just a couple more questions, if you don't mind. And this one is a fun one. So if you could have a huge billboard and write anything that you'd want on it for everybody to see in a highly trafficked place, what would that billboard say? And, and what's the topic? Mm. Uh, it could be, it could really be anything. I mean, I, you know, in my mind, something uh, inspiring, but it really could be any message that you have in your mind or that you some sort of belief that you have. Well, I, I think is it would be get involved, you know, make something in your life, do something, find a passion and live it. Get out there and make it happen. I, I love the, the Nike slogan of just do it. Don't sit around on your duff. Get out and uh, and uh, make your life an active life. Love it. Very inspiring. Appreciate that, Bill. It's awesome. And uh, where can we go to learn more about you and La Jolla, you know, whether that's website, social media or anything else? Well, the La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club has a, has a nice website. It's called ljbtc.com. That's the initials of La Jolla Beach and Tennis Club. And, uh, you know, that's, that's great. I, you know, I don't have a website for myself. I, you know, I, I, I uh, actually have a Facebook account, but I, I don't have time to be posting on it. So. <laughs> <laughs> so no, you're I not follow. selfing every day? Yeah, I'm not, you're posting I'm not selfies? Selfing. No, no. I leave it. I leave that to my daughters. And, but, there you uh, go. but, uh, no, I, I think, uh, you know, it's a, I don't have any, any great spot to, but the, the beach club has a terrific history. I think it's worth the, you know, people getting on there and, and seeing what we're doing. You know, we've got, uh, we do have some great, uh, the beach club itself has got, uh, some wonderful Facebook uh, pages and Twitter accounts and, and the like, so you can do that. But uh, I don't, I don't have any really novel ideas for that. But uh, there is information out there on the on the internet. So 
Great, Bill. Yeah, and I don't blame you with uh, everything you're doing. It's definitely better if you're not on social media than if you are, unless you really need to be. So that's that, that's great. And uh, we'll we'll obviously link or post all the links uh, on the show notes page for this episode. So you can definitely go check out La Jolla's website on the show notes page. And before I let you go, Bill, uh, again, really appreciate your time. What is one key tip that you can give our audience to help them improve their tennis games? There's probably two that I can give you. One of them is uh, use the backboard. It's it's the most humbling teacher there is, and uh, and you can learn at your own pace. And the second thing is get out and play tournament tennis because it forces you to really – it makes your practice sessions more meaningful. You will get out and you will improve – at a much quicker rate if you have a goal and the goal would be playing in a tournament. And uh, you will also learn from your opponents what it is that you're doing wrong. So th- those are probably my two things. Love that, Bill. I still still haven't been able to defeat the backboard after all these years. And also with uh, <laughs> with tournament tennis, I mean, you- you're totally right, of course. I mean, as soon as I register for a tournament, I'm instantly eating much better than I used to and, and really focused in training and all these things. And, you know, you just no- it's no better motivator than when you lose to a higher quality opponent and your game is exposed and then you have a lot of things to work on. So great stuff there, Bill. And so again, Bill, I really do appreciate your time and all your contributions to the tennis world. And uh, it really was a pleasure and an honor to speak with you today and uh, really enjoyed it. And I'm sure the audience uh, did as well. And we'll learn a lot from this episode. So thanks a lot for being a guest on the, the Tennis Files podcast. And I really appreciate it, Bill. Thanks for inviting me to participate. And uh don't forget to get out on the tennis court once in a while. Oh, I definitely will. I'm planning on it soon. So uh, thanks again, Bill. All the best and uh, hope to talk with you again soon. Super. Okay. Thanks a lot. All right. I really hope you enjoyed this episode with Bill Kellogg. Bill, a huge shout out to you and thanks so much for taking the time to be a guest on the podcast. Really enjoyed speaking with you and learning about uh, all your fantastic ideas and viewpoints and experiences along the way. Very, very cool. And I really admire what you've done in the tennis world. And I would really appreciate it if you all would subscribe to the Tennis Files podcast. And you can do that by hitting the subscribe button on the podcast app of your choice. For iTunes, you can go to tennisfiles.com slash iTunes and hit the the subscribe button there. But in any case, uh, I'd really appreciate that subscribe. As always, you can check out all the show notes on the show notes page. You can find uh, links to anything that we talked about today and obviously some text and explanation of what to expect in the episode and so forth. And you can do that by going to tennisfiles.com slash 85. And last but definitely not least, I'd like to leave you all with a quote for today. And this quote is by James Cameron. And James said, If you set your goals ridiculously high and it's a failure, you will fail above everyone else's success. Very powerful quote there. Well, thanks again, as always, for tuning in to the podcast. I really do appreciate all your support and kind messages. And I know you, you all email me and send me Facebook messages and 
and so forth and comment and like. Uh, I really appreciate every single one of those. So thank you so much for that. And I'll continue to put out weekly episodes and work on Tennis Summit 2019 coming up in a couple months. And I'll keep you updated with all that. And uh, if you'd like to get all these updates, you can uh, subscribe to my newsletter at TennisFiles.com and you'll see an opt-in for that. So I really do appreciate it and get out there and play some tennis, come home and figure out what you did well and not well and pick out something to work on and improve the next time around. So really appreciate you listening and, and for your support, as I mentioned, and we'll see you on the next episode of the Tennis Files podcast. Take care, everyone. Thanks for listening to the Tennis Files podcast. For more tips to help you improve your tennis game, visit TennisFiles.com.